Welcome to Your Child's Brain, a podcast series produced by Kennedy Krieger Institute with assistance from WYPR. I'm Dr. Brad Schlager, pediatric neurologist and president and CEO of Kennedy Krieger Institute. Today, we will be discussing autism, building on last month's episode devoted to definitions, epidemiology, early diagnosis and intervention. Today, we will be discussing causes of autism and also behavioral and mental health challenges experienced by some individuals with autism. I'm joined today by Drs. Connie Smith-Hicks, Dan Hoover, and Louis Hagopian. Dr. Smith-Hicks, a pediatric neurologist, is the medical director of the Center for Autism and Related Disorders at Kennedy Krieger Institute, and is an assistant professor of neurology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Hoover is a child and adolescent psychologist at the Center for Child and Family Traumatic Stress at Kennedy Krieger, and is an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Hagopian, a behavioral psychologist, is the director of the Neurobehavioral Unit at Kennedy Krieger and is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins. So welcome, Connie, Dan, and Lewis. Now, before we get started, I'd like to again acknowledge that in the autism advocacy community, there are differing perspectives on how best to use language. Some prefer identity-first language. She is an autistic person. Others prefer person-first language. He is a person with autism. At Kennedy Krieger, we recognize and respect these perspectives and take no position on which form of language is preferable. We think that the most inclusive and respectful approach is to use the language interchangeably and, whenever possible, ask an individual how they would like to be identified. And another important level set is to say that the diagnosis of autism does not equate to illness. So today we are not focusing on autism per se, but rather individuals with autism who are seeking help and care. So let's get started. We've got uh, a lot to, to cover in a short amount of time. Let's begin with the question is, is autism a neurological, a mental health, a behavioral, genetic, developmental disorder? And what is the difference? And perhaps each of you can start out by giving some experience, patients that you've seen or perspective on the heterogeneity. Maybe we can start out with Lewis. Sure. Um, our neurobehavioral programs are designed specifically to treat challenging behavior experienced by children with autism, intellectual disabilities. These problem behaviors include uh, things such as self-injury, aggression, property destruction. And um, we have a very comprehensive approach to treatment. We try to understand the behavior, why it's occurring, and then work on developing a treatment to uh, teach the individual new skills and help their caregivers learn how to better manage these behaviors. I think one good way to describe our program and the nature of the problems uh, that we treat is to tell you uh, about a young man we served in our program named Nick. Nick was diagnosed with autism and had moderate intellectual disability. Uh, his parents described him as an easy, easygoing kid. Uh, around the time he became a teenager, he started to develop severe self-injury. He would hit his head very hard when he became frustrated and angry. And eventually that behavior uh, became worse and included aggression. Um, he was difficult to manage. Um, these problems uh, impaired his ability to function at school. Um, he it resulted in injuries to himself and others. 
And uh, his parents did the best they could to manage him. They had him see specialists, but uh, eventually uh, he had to be hospitalized. Actually, he was hospitalized five times prior to coming to our program. When he came to us, he had to be transported by ambulance because he was so unsafe and difficult to manage in the car. When he was admitted to our program, we did a number of behavioral psychiatric assessments, to try to understand why he was engaging in these problem behaviors. Our assessment showed he had problem behavior when he became frustrated uh, and was, diff and was um, unable to solve problems and communicate his needs. So we put together a, co a comprehensive treatment that included teaching him problem solving skills, improving his communication skills, and teaching him to, to tolerate uh, life's everyday frustrations. And it included medication to help control his impulsivity and um, uh, mood dysregulation. When he returned home, uh, he, had a, he had a very good outcome. He actually became an accomplished artist and entrepreneur. He started a business with his, with his mother and has sold his artwork to support charitable causes, including our own program, uh, and uh, um, has a career uh, as an artist. So not everyone uh, we treat has that kind of outcome. In fact, everybody we treat is very different. Um, each bring um, different challenges, different skills, um, and each um, has a different treatment. The, these behavior problems are very heterogeneous. Uh, and our assessment really is focused on trying to understand what is happening with that particular child and family so we can design a highly individualized treatment to serve uh, their needs. Dan, maybe you can uh, take the next crack. Yes, yeah, I, I really love that story, Lewis, about your patient that you saw and reminded me a little bit of some of the patients that we see in our Center for Child and Family Traumatic Stress. We have children with autism and also some other developmental disorders who have been subject to, um, it's it maybe not so much be, having behavior problems like you mentioned, but subject to maltreatment and child abuse. Um, some of our kids have really had a lot of bullying and bad treatment from others, ostracism and teasing by their peers. And it's really shaken them up. Uh, it can be highly distressing. And so our work has really been focusing on understanding that, helping them to understand how them and their families to understand how traumas impacted them uh, and getting better and feeling better, less distressed, and really focusing on their mental health more than anything else. Thanks, Dan. Connie, would you like to comment? Oh, absolutely. Thanks, Brad. I would agree with Dan and Lois. Autism is complex. It's brain-based and its features become noticeable early in life. When the brain is growing and changing in response to experience, and it's for that reason that I would use the term neurodevelopmental, the patients that I see generally fall into two broad categories. They're those who have experienced developmental regression that may affect their language, their motor skills, or their behavior. And then there are those who have had a plateau in their development despite intensive early intervention. And they may either no longer acquire skills or there may be significant slowing in the rate at which they acquire skills. Now, some of the questions that I get asked by parents is, is this autism? Are we missing something? Or should we be looking more closely at the brain? And these are really excellent questions because we know that developmental regression can be associated with epilepsy. And sometimes we see the regression before classic seizure emerges. So this then gives us an opportunity to intervene. 
some of the patients that I see have what we call syndromic autism, whereby the autism occurs in association with other childhood and neurologic conditions or structural differences in how other organs in their bodies are formed. So in general, when parents come to see me, they wish to know the cause for their child's challenges, or they may be interested in knowing the risk for having another child who is equally affected. Connie, so lately there's been a lot of discussion about genetic contributions to autism. So picking up on that, that last set of points you've made, can, can you talk a little bit more about what it means to have a genetic contribution and how that relates to this syndromic form of autism? how they're identified or diagnosed, and then the thought process that parents often have to go through when it comes to the consideration of genetic testing. Absolutely. You know, so insights into the genetics of autism really came out of uh, twin studies back in the 1970s. And in those studies, the concordance rates uh, for autism in identical twins was about 80%. And the corresponding rates uh, in fraternal twins was between 30 and 40%. And it's this finding that really supported the idea that autism is both heritable and has a strong genetic basis. And since then, there's been tremendous growth in our understanding of the genetics of autism, but we have also learned that social behaviors are both complex and diverse. And much of this diversity results from genetic variations between individuals and the interplay between genes and the environment. I must say that there are no autism genes, right? We have over 200 genes that confer risk for autism and the number of these genes continue to grow. Um, so when we do see a genetic cause, uh, what we note is that the autism is seen in association with other medical conditions. And that's when we use the term syndromic autism. Some of the common genetic syndromes that we see would be fragile X syndrome, Rett syndrome, uh, tuber sclerosis, feline dermit, and uh, SYNGAP1-related idea are some genetic disorders that are associated with autism. These are all caused by uh, variants or changes in these single genes that disrupt protein function, and we use the term pathogenic variants. But it's important to note that not all people with these genetic diagnoses necessarily have autism. The genes confer risk for developmental diagnoses and autism is one of the possible outcomes. You asked, how are these diagnoses made? Well, unlike autism, where the diagnosis is based on clinical features alone, genetic syndromes are diagnosed based on a combination of the genetic test results and the uh, associated clinical features. And there are three main types of genetic tests that we use. There's a trinucleotide repeat that we use in the case of fragile X syndrome. And then we ask the question, are there genes that are missing as in duplicate, uh, deleted rather, or duplicated? And then we also look at the sequence of the letters that make up the gene. A few points I wanna make regarding risk benefits conversations that I have with parents. You know, I'll start by saying that although genetic testing is recommended by multiple medical uh, associations, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Neurology, the decision to do genetic testing is a very personal one. I often tell parents that we all have genetic variability and that's really what accounts for human diversity. So when we do genetic testing, we're looking for rare powerful changes that disturb gene function. 
And while genetic tests may answer the question why, that is, why does my child have autism or why does my child have cognitive difficulties, uh, knowing the cause for, say, Johnny's autism doesn't change who he is. It might, however, tell us if he's at risk for other medical actionable conditions, and that allows us to provide some anticipatory guidance. Now, sometimes we see what's called incidental findings or uh, variants of uncertain significance, and the uncertainty that's associated uh, with these results can often be very stressful for parents, and some really do opt out of testing for that reason. Connie, um, that's a... It's a great introduction to the considerations around genetics and genetic testing. Um, there's much more to, to unpack there. I, I know, uh, I think we, we should uh, move on to, to address some of the questions around those conditions that can go along for the ride with, with autism. And so Dan, let's, let's start with you. We often talk about comorbidities or co-occurring disorders. What are they and, and when do they become apparent? Well, they um, there are a number of co-occurring disorders that can go with autism or that people with autism experience. I may stick to the mental health ones in particular. Uh, we know, for example, that many people with autism have a higher likelihood of experiencing anxiety and anxiety disorders and at a much higher rate than non-autistic people do. So that's one. Another is, you know, mood changes, depression, attention deficits, and, um, various kinds of anxiety. So you sort of the gamut, the range of different kinds of mental health disorders that can present in autism are really vast. Sometimes they really depend on the, ch the person or the child's experience. So they're not necessarily autism specific, but they have had experiences that make them more sensitive to what's going on. For example, being attuned to um, certain sensory experiences that can really set a person on edge. Sometimes our school systems, our school classrooms are not particularly well suited to kids with autism. And so they get more anxious with all the people and the crowding and the noise and so on. That's just an example of some of the um, inputs that can lead to further anxiety. So there are a number of co-occurring things. In addition to post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, where there are actual um, insults or harms that are done that a person carries and has a hard time forgetting about, maybe plagued by intrusive thoughts or memories of what happened and have a hard time getting that out of, out of your mind and feeling better. So those are some of the co-occurring. Lewis, um, th this is a developmental disorder or context, these co-occurring conditions, do they themselves have a developmental profile? Do we see them emerging at a at certain time points during development? So problem behavior can emerge at any time. Um, um, some findings show that they are more common among adolescents and they tend to decrease into adulthood. In, uh, in terms of uh, anxiety and some of the other the points that Dan was making about other uh, uh, behavioral mental health issues in addition to the problem behaviors. Or Dan, maybe you want to take that uh, in terms of the developmental time course for anxiety showing up in autism. Yes, it can show up quite early. Uh, just as Lewis is saying about behaviors, anxiety can show up early. Um, it's, uh, it's very different from person to person. So I don't think there's a really good predictive time frame that we have about when they might start, but sometimes very early. 
do, do you have a way of thinking about why uh, anxiety and autism are so connected? Uh, as I mentioned, I think autism can um, enhance a person's sensitivity and sensitivity to interpersonal situations, sensitivity to certain inputs and sen sensations like sound and vision and tactile sensations. And then there can be a certain one-minded, single-minded style that some people with autism have. So it can be really hard to be in a setting where everybody's doing their own thing and it doesn't follow the rule, seem to follow the rules. And it can be highly upsetting if you need things to be same and quiet and, and relatively well-managed. It's just life isn't like that. And so anxiety set in early, depending on how much exposure there is to those kinds of things. Louis, let's let's uh, unpack the other maybe other psychiatric co-occurring conditions. How how common are they, and and how do you go about uh, identifying them and treating them? Identifying psychiatric problems in children with autism can be challenging because sometimes we see problem behavior that is related to events in the environment, skills, deficits, et cetera, and other times it is related to a psychiatric condition. And teasing that apart can be a, cha a challenge. And that's one of the things we focus on when we're assessing uh, problem behavior in the patients that we serve. We try to conduct both behavioral and psychiatric assessments to try to delineate which is going on so that we can apply the most appropriate treatment. You mentioned the, the problem behaviors, behavioral issues in general. How, how often is it the case uh, that self-injurious behaviors or other problem behaviors are part of the autism clinical profile? It, it, is it very common or rare? Or where does it fit into that spectrum? And the estimates for the prevalence of problem behavior in autism do vary widely. But generally, we're talking about 50% of individuals with autism have some type of problem behavior. Now, individuals without autism with intellectual disabilities also have problem behavior, but the, the presence of autism is a, is a known risk factor. There's a higher probability of problem behavior, and problem behavior includes a variety of things. I mentioned self-injury and aggression. Uh, individuals also experience other problems, including destructive behavior, uh, elopement, which can be very serious, which is simply wandering off without a caregiver being aware. Uh, that's resulted in some significant problems. It could result in death, unfortunately. Uh, we also see individuals with pica, which is the ingestion of things that should not be eaten. And that also obviously can be uh, very risky. It can lead to poisoning. It can lead to, um, it can lead to internal uh, injury and even, even death. Um, we also see a lot of avoidance and noncompliance. Sometimes it's associated with anxiety and sometimes individuals are just avoiding things. Um, and it's a problem when they avoid essential activities such as doing schoolwork or activities that are essential to their daily living. So when, when you see self-harm, how, how do you go about treating it? What's, what's the approach? Is it medication, behavior, combination of the two? Yes, um, it, there is no single, there is no single uh, treatment, but there, are, there is an approach that, that we espouse uh, both within our outpatient programs and our inpatient program. And it's really focused initially on trying to understand why the behavior occurs. So self-injury as well as other problem behaviors um, um, vary widely across individuals. We see differences in their frequency, the severity, the patterning in terms of how they occur across the day, whether they're cyclical, Etc. And they also occur for different reasons. And the focus of functional behavioral assessment is to identify 
what are the events in the environment that occasion and reinforce these behaviors? What are the skills deficits that might be present that exacerbate these problems? And a lot of times these other uh, comorbidities can exacerbate problem behaviors. So we know that children with autism have more sleep problems. They have problems with, with eating. They have gastrointestinal issues that sometimes might be a source of pain or discomfort, and that can exacerbate their problem behavior. So our approach to understanding self-injury involves trying to understand the, the causes. What are the mechanisms involved for this particular individual? And then once we understand that, we can apply a very targeted intervention. So as a result of that approach, all of our interventions are very individualized. Um, they vary from, from individual, from child to child. Some include medication if we have mood instability or anxiety or depression that we also want to target. And some are primarily behavioral if, if the main things going on are events in the environment and skills deficits that we can target with behavioral treatment. Even though the interventions are highly individualized, this general approach is sort of represents um, uh, sort of a uniform way we, we deal with these problems. Dan, you, you uh, referenced earlier post-traumatic stress disorder. We, we know that you work in the Center for Child and Family Traumatic Stress. Let, let's talk a bit about how children with autism are at increased risk for being traumatized and what happens in that context when, when a child with autism is traumatized. How does that play out from a... Uh, clinical manifestations, how do you approach it? Yes, we know that children with autism are approximately two to three times more likely to experience potentially traumatic events than non-autistic individuals. For lots of different reasons, it may be increased vulnerability, um, being targeted sometimes by, by peers and others, having um, lots of adverse experiences as part of their life. Unfortunately, life experiences happen. They can be very sensitive to the things that have happened and um, hang on to those things. And they sort of repetitively play out in, in your mind. It's hard to get rid of. So what we often notice is increased fears, avoidance of situations that were experienced as traumatic, like school or the neighborhood or certain people or events. Um, and sometimes we have seen, and the research has borne out some, re, some further regressions in previously attained milestones. So, so maybe some speech or ability to do adaptive skills, like going to the bathroom or dressing oneself after a trauma can actually go backwards and you have a regression that's related directly to something that happened. And those things can happen. And that's where parents and family members often will notice something's different and maybe something's different under certain circumstances that wasn't happening before. And then uh, we know that sometimes trauma treatment is needed. And what we've been doing is to adapt some of our evidence-based uh, processes and therapies that we use for non-autistic individuals and adapting those for children and families who um, have autism and trying to uh, present material and coping tools and strategies in the best preferred way through visual supports, stories, um, games. We've done a lot of our work online lately during the pandemic. So adapting some of those resources to help the families and children learn coping skills and um, reduce that, that significant anxiety that's caused by reminders of trauma. So Connie, you're, in addition to being an expert 
child neurologist. You're also an expert developmental neuroscientist. So would love to hear you speak to uh, how the autistic brain is different from, or, or maybe same as a, a typically developing brain. How do you view that? There's been a, a lot of work done looking at brain imaging and functional connectivity in autism. And uh, there is no uh, characteristic structural changes that we see in all individuals with autism. We do know that individuals with autism are able to learn and remember, and some of them have a greater capacity for memory than non-autistic individuals. We also know that individuals who have autism are able to respond to therapies, and Dan and Lois talked about that. And therapies are able to work because it takes advantage of the brain's ability to change. Dan, I'm going to give you the last word on this one. What what gives you hope? What's on the horizon? One thing that's exciting to me is that uh, all the new research and clinical writing that's going on in the field of treating mental health problems in people with autism, five to 10 years ago, it practically didn't exist, especially around traumatic stress disorders and anxiety and depression. And now we have new studies coming out all the time that are helping inform us about how to best treat and relieve the suffering that we see and, and get people better. Well, as, uh, as is clear, autism is a very large and complex topic. It affects people throughout the lifespan. And we're devoting several episodes of this podcast to the topic. In future episodes, we'll cover the middle and high school years, transition from school to work or community life, challenges and inequities that individuals with autism face, among other significant issues. Please check out our entire library of topics on your child's brain at wypr.org, kennedykrieger.org, or wherever you get your podcasts.